Adult Animation Part 2! Okay, so, quick recap. People of Pictures, the stroboscopic effect and aliasing are both effects or phenomena to explain how we see cartoons. Emil Cole made the first one. We pretty much immediately started using them to speak our minds and or censor each other and or use them for propaganda. Along with propaganda came tech and investors, including William Randolph Hearst. Um, famous characters started to pop up in America around um, World War One when they were starting to be used to explain both very important things to military um, personnel as well as um, civilian war efforts to save and conserve. And then um, the depression comes, things get gnarly, and to cover up some of the scandal and sadness, um, Hayes and his code come along to shame Betty Boop and her buxom body for bestiality while low-key trying to evade his own scandal in the White House. So that's where we're at right now. And we'll get started with this week. Despite, you know, Betty Boop kind of being a popular casualty of the Hayes Code, uh, there is a silver lining to this censorship in the form of a silver bullet. Despite those hurdles, American animation continued to flourish. In fact, it was Betty Boop's creator, Max Fleischer, who later ushered in the golden age of animation with Superman cartoons. Oh, America's oh. Go <laughs> so America's go-to superhero bounded into cartoondom in the early 1940s. The comic book character's popularity and power soared and was a huge success. So if it wasn't for censorship, we may have never had Superman. And his steely chin <laughs> very convincingly disguised glasses like I don't like somehow the glasses made him disappear and I'll never forget so that's pretty cool <laughs> I mean I definitely remember being a kid that wore glasses <laughs> and being like I feel like they would still know who you were and just be like hey Superman where are your glasses but <laughs> is Superman the origin for the girl takes off her glasses and is suddenly hot trope was he the first amazing Superman was the original <laughs> she's all that yeah no, I have a question because I cannot remember, and I don't know if you came across it in your uh, in your research, but was it just Wonder Woman or were the original Superman drawings uh, like a BDSM thing? Or was that just Wonder Woman? Because I thought that the guy who created Superman, I thought I mean, Max he... is a freak, so I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> There's a lot of like BDSM cartoons of Superman from when he was like originally created. Well, I did not come across that in my research, but I would say that another thing that I remember a lot from cartoons of this time is women being bound by things and then those bindings at some point getting tighter and tighter to squeeze out her boobs and yes. whatever else wasn't <laughs> so like yeah could Mike max have drawn something like that a hundred percent um did i find evidence to that no would i put it past him never um <laughs> 
Uh, don't look now, but here comes TV. So in April 1938, <laughs> there were about 15 television sets connected. NBC aired the eight-minute low-budget cartoon Willy the Worm, made especially for the broadcast by former Disney employee Chad Grothkopf, mainly with cutouts and a bit of cell animation. So still, in 1938, there are people making things with the cutout format and mixing that with the celluloid. Um, and and then, everyone's dad at this time said, TV is a scam. It'll never be a thing. Yes, I'm not going to spend money on that newfangled technology. It's huge and heavy. No one cares. Listen to the radio. Yeah. Um, who needs TV? Have you guys not heard of the Maltese Falcon? Like, whatever. <laughs> Dads were trying to convince you it was fun in 38. Um, you should be mining coal and smoking a pipe, just like you're, just like I did when I was 13. Like, what? <laughs> In 38, I do feel like if you ask your dad to get a TV, he might tell you to legitimately get a job. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so about a year later, on May 3rd, 1939, Disney's Donald's Cousin Gus premiered on NBC's experimental W2XBS channel a few weeks before it was released in movie theaters. The cartoon was a part of the first full evening program of television. Time really is a flat circle. So we've got... <laughs> Movies that are debuting in your home before in the theater. Yep. yep. You're so right, Jordan. And then being like, okay, now it'll be like the commercial in the next, in between the next like feature you go to see in the movie theater. Exactly. Wow. Like, oh, yeah, I remember they showed this on TV or like you said, didn't see it. And, but one of your friends that had a TV would have seen, seen it and then confirmed that that was what you missed. <laughs> oh. oh yeah because it was just so exclusive at the time because not everyone i think still had tvs exactly it was only a year oh, right. later so um yeah so that is you're so right uh so during world war ii um we're gonna oh i named this section world war ii propaganda boogaloo so <laughs> so all right this is what I was accidentally about to meld together earlier, but I was like, no, this just happens twice. Um, so during <laughs> World War II, animation went back to its roots as a medium for propaganda and child warfare. Um, the U.S. had their best studios working on it. Uh, the U.S. Army's first motion picture unit existed from 1942 to 1945 at Hal Roach Studios in Culver City, California. It included filmmakers um, like Looney Tunes's Rudolph Ising and animator Frank Thomas, as well as Dr. Seuss. And produced okay. hundreds of training films on a continuous schedule. That's a quote, training films on a continuous schedule. Wow. Animation was integral in these films, helping pilots fly airplanes, soldiers learn five points of military camouflage, and train others how to correctly use handheld weapons. So the army literally had a unit for three years where like freaking Donald Duck was like, make sure your gun's always pointing down. Like that's what these <laughs> dudes were doing. <laughs> Oh wow! And to just think like that Elmer Fudd being like, duh, 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 don't forget, forget about friendly fire. Like, what is going on? 
And for some reason, Bugs Bunny is dressed like a German Fraulein, just trying to entice him. <laughs> he notoriously does the espionage, so that makes perfect sense. Oh, there is, hell yeah. There's also, I'm sure that it was like an allusion to it, but for sure there is an old cartoon where Bugs dresses up like what would be for adults like a Nazi female spy, like a seductress for the other <laughs> side. I swear. I swear that he's been drawn that way. Oh, um, my God. So Disney also produced several instructive shorts and personally financed the feature-length Victory Through Air Power in 1943 okay. that promoted the idea of long-range bombings. The ca- these cartoons were meant to instruct service personnel about all kinds of military subjects and boost morale. Damn, okay. So, yeah. So, back to using cartoons for warfare. Like, many um, popular characters, um, because also now these characters are recognizable and people have emotional connection to them, I feel like they worked better on civilians as well. So, Bugs Bunny in any bonds today promotes war bonds. Disney's uh, Little Pigs and and the Thrifty Pigs had a... um, have they have them like saving nylon all of these different things that they wanted people to do in real life for the war effort daffy duck asked for scrap metal in another um short (laughs) Minnie mouse and pluto invite civilians to collect their cooking grease so that it could be used for making explosives and out of the firing pan into the firing line that's the name oh my god wow that's intense Um, so yeah uh, Bugs Bunny became something of a national icon because these because of these films and Disney's propaganda short De Fuhrer's Face, which is uh, one of the pictures that I sent you all starring Donald Donald Duck. And it's kind of like a Nazi uh, short in terms of like propaganda for us to fight them short. Um, wow. And it won the company's 10th Academy Award for cartoon short subjects. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's insane. So like their animation is starting to, you know, really come into its own in terms of how it's used in pop culture and those kind of the blurred lines. Whoa. Okay. What we talk about in our Patreon extra and Marvel and the idea of military and personal people having large amounts of money put into these things and that kind of steering things one way or another. Absolutely. Interesting. Uh, Anime even has war to thank for funding. Japan's first first feature anime, um, Momotaro Sacred Sailors, was made in 1944 and was ordered by the Ministry of the Navy of Japan. It was designed for children and partly inspired by Fantasia and was meant to inspire dreams and hope for peace. The main characters are a monkey, a dog, a bear, and a pheasant who become parachute troopers, except for the pheasant who becomes a pilot, even though he has wings, and are tasked (laughs) with invading... Okay. And uh, they are tasked with invading a a small, it's called Celebes, which I looked up and it's like uh, part, it's a part of one, it's one of the greater Sunda islands that is governed by Indonesia. So it was very specific to their goals at the time, I think. But the epilogue hints at America being the target for the next generation. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Like the epilogue of that anime. (laughs) 
Um, so this made me think that I would argue that even the first cartoons meant for children shouldn't have actually been meant for children. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And then, and then just a fun fact, in 1954, a British film studio produced an animated adaptation of George Orwell's novel Animal Farm. The film is believed to have been one of the great uh, earliest examples of British animation. And like the book, it was meant to be a, per, a critique of Stalinism with characters serving as analogs to figures from the Russian Revolution of 1917. The film was brought to the silver screen thanks to funding from the CIA and support from the CIA's Office of Policy Coordination and was banned by the Soviet Union. <sighs> Jesus. Damn. So okay. just I just put that in just as a in this section of, you know, military uh cartoon warfare, like propaganda <laughs> back and forth <laughs> and people trying to ban things because they either bring things to light or put money into them because they bring things to light to someone in another country, like just the idea of them using animation as a chess piece in warfare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so post-war an animation, um, when it came to anything not essential to survival, uh, World War II had negatively affected a lot of foreign markets. Uh, a lot of these setbacks were just because of, like you said, things that were going on in the time and people just having bigger fish to fry. Yeah. Uh, so now we're going to talk about kind of them pushing forward despite that, and it's um, going to be funny some of the things that are brought out in this time. So Pinocchio and Fantasia were both released in 1940. Disney okay. cut back on the cost for the next feature, The Reluctant Dragon, which mostly consists of a live action tour of the new studio in Burbank, partly in black and white with four short cartoons. This was okay. a mild success, but it's like very clearly they're like grasping at straws, trying to make something happen when they don't have money to make full length, you know, films. Yeah. Um, it was followed a few months later by Dumbo in 1941, only 64 minutes long and animated in a simple. Uh, a simpler economic style. It helped mm. to secure a profit at the box of office and critics and audiences reacted positively. I did not realize that Dumbo was 64 minutes long. <laughs> that's so short. Yeah, that's really that is... short, right? Yeah. Um, so well, I mean, now every movie oh. is like seven hours long. So that's true. <laughs> Fair enough. You're right. Oh, Keith knows that he can sell me on going to the movies if he tells me, all right, it's a crisp hour 34. And I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah, for real. If it's under two hours. In terms of someone that now has to watch things for work, I absolutely will be like, what is this, hour and a half? I can do 245s. Like, I can wrap my brain around having to watch <laughs> oh. something that long. But like, once you start something and you're like, I've been watching this for an hour. What's left? Another hour and a half? What is this? <laughs> like, this would have come on two separate DVDs. What's happening? I have not watched a film to completion. I don't know. Like, I just, my ADD acts up and I fall asleep or I get bored or I'll just, like, walk away and start doing other things. Like, I just have a really hard time focusing on a film anyway unless it's really good that. yeah um yeah i can totally see that so disney's next feature uh in the next year was bambi in 1942 it, re it returned a larger budget 
and a more lavish style, but uh, the more dramatic story, darker mood, and lack of fantasy elements was not well-received in its initial run, and it lost money at the box office. Surprise, surprise, people weren't on deck in 42 to watch somebody's mom die up top. (laughs) (laughs) I, as a child, A, was scared of Bambi. It made me really upset. And also, when I was a little kid, we would drive up north to visit my grandma and grandpa. And one time, my mom hit a deer. And I started (gasps) screaming and crying that she had killed Bambi. Oh, my Uh God. So I was just like, you killed Bambi. Like that. (laughs) My mom was like a single mother trying to visit her parents for the holidays. Oh, it's so funny. Also, just like thinking, like, oh, they're definitely gonna judge me if I show up, and she's bawling her eyes out. (laughs) Yeah, it was a rough situation. (laughs) R.I.P. Bambi. Sorry, my dad. I cried um, when Mufasa dies in The Lion King, and my dad yelled at me. So it's fine. (laughs) I cried when Mufasa dies in The Lion King because my dad was gone, and I related too hard, and the daycare people didn't know how to deal with it. Oh, no. (laughs) I was crying, and my dad said, what's wrong with you? It's just a cartoon. Amazing. And I was like, you should be happy that I care that a dad died. Right? You should be happy. I can feel emotions and I'm not some type of psychopath. Thank you. Yeah, I was like, literally, (laughs) I didn't even like him that much when I was younger. I was like, you should be happy that I am feeling this level of empathy for a father. But okay. (laughs) Um, This is like kind of a a to be continued for Disney. But despite the post-war decline, Disney kept the faith in animated feature animation. For decades, Disney would be the only American studio to release animated theatrical feature films on a regular basis. Wow. Okay. He kind of figured out the business model and was just like, we got it. And just refused to give up on it in this kind of stint we're going to go into where people were like, no one cares about cartoons. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, now we're getting into the 1950s, um, which I called the 1950s cutting corners. The scheduling (laughs) constraints of the 1950s American TV uh, animation process led to the development of various techniques now known as um, limited animation. This was thanks to the widespread proliferation of TV in the 50s and 60s. So the wave that Andrea was talking about, dad saying would never come. Um, TVs allowed studios to target kids specifically, which they did through the less sophisticated limited animation popular popularized by Hanna-Barbera in the 1950s. And this sparser type of animation that was originally embraced as a means to cut back production time and costs. So they're doing less frames per second, essentially, right? Right. So... Um, full frame animation or what they call on ones became rare in the U.S. Um, and it, uh, for increasingly and was used for increasingly less theatrical productions. Yeah. So and- animators would reuse large parts of the same frame over and over again. So yep. it's not even what you were saying before, um, Andrea, where uh, they're using the same visual and doing the character they'll straight use the whole chunk of that character and just reuse it 
Absolutely. And I remember because we used to, you know, Cartoon Network used to run the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Oh, and yeah. Even like, and like old Scooby-Doo's and stuff. And like every once in a while, like they didn't finish coloring a frame. So like Scooby's arm will be blue or whatever. And just like <laughs> weird shit like that. So, yes, this is um, there are with every one of these technical technical technological advances <laughs> that um is also made for efficiency there is some version of an animator that is like yeah this is death of creativity on some version you know what absolutely I mean? so um animators would reuse larger parts of the same frame over and over again rather than redrawing them the result was far cruder and less artistic than your typical disney fair of previous decades um, meanwhile, a dying studio system slashed their animation departments, meaning uh, the end of these intricately drawn animated shorts. All of this led to what uh, animation scholar M. Keith Booker calls a, quote, widespread perception in the television industry that animated programs could succeed only as children's fair on Saturday mornings. Mm. So it's really just that TV blew up. They didn't really see a space not for them at all, but just that they could do what they needed to do with um, cruder versions of them. So it was like, we don't need to invest the money in them to be that good. We can make a crappier cartoon and still get kids to watch. So why would we invest that much money in them? Absolutely. It's kind of the idea of like, at the end of the day, you need to make a living at this. And animation is such a time consuming pursuit. How can you do that if you're doing the best version at the quantity right. you need it? Right. Uh, uh, so Chuck Jones coined the term illustrated radio to refer to the shoddy style of most television cartoons that depended more on their soundtracks than the visuals, which is again, kind of a, um, accidental recurrence of it being like, oh, well now these are just pictures with sound and that being, you know, <laughs> yeah, the big deal about it. Um, and then some producers also found that the limited animation looked better on the small black and white TV screens of the time. So right. they also were like, yeah, this is cruder, but what we are making them for doesn't have that good of a picture anyway. So again, Absolutely. we don't care. Uh-huh. Um, but you can't argue with success. The Flintstones was the first animated series to premiere in primetime, um, 8 to 11 p.m. on a weeknight in 1960. The show centered around characters who lived in a prehistoric universe um, whose society very much resembled life in the 60s. It is a classic which appealed to children and adults with a blend of jokes and stories that both age groups could enjoy. Yeah. So, which, is a, which is a trend that we will continue to see. <laughs> a lot of um, wife humor, which it, like this era is just like my wife. And then, you know, yes, the honeymooners. They yep. talk about the honeymooners <laughs> a lot when people bring up the Flintstones. Yes, 100 <laughs> percent. Um, so just to catch up for, um, catch up animation outside of the U S, um, for this time, it appeared that the U S dominated animation techniques. Many animation producers outside the U S chose to work with alternate, alternate techniques, um, as opposed to the traditional or celluloid animation, such as puppet animation or cutouts. Um, several countries, most notably Russia, China, and Japan, developed their own um, relatively large animation industries. Uh, so Russia has a in, a studio called Soyuzmultfilm, maybe beautiful okay. uh, that was 
Soyuz Multifilm, I feel like that's as close as I'm going to get, was founded in 1936 and employed up to 700 skilled workers. And during the Soviet period, produced 20 films per year on average. Wow. Um, okay. Some other titles out, outside the U.S. market in this time include The Princess of Iron Fan in, Jap- in China in 1941 that was influential in Japan. Okay. The Humpback Horse in 1947, <laughs> uh, which won a special jury award at Cannes in 1950. Okay. okay. And um, the Dynamite Brothers from Italy in 1949, uh, <laughs> as well as the Rose Baghdad of, that is also Italian. And a, an English dub of that Italian film stars Julie Andrews. The oh. Dynamite Brothers just sounds like the precursor to the Mario Brothers. <laughs> like I'm just imagining like two plumbers but even that was an influence because the Mario Brothers is Japanese Italian people didn't make that so that was just Italian people thinking of what that was so maybe yeah. it is <laughs> that's really funny <laughs> oh man so yeah that was just like it in terms of yes we were doing the most but there were thing animated uh, features happening in other countries that were um, being recognized so um, I'm going to do a little blip on the rise of anime in the 1960s. Uh, it, was domestic- <laughs> it was first domestically broadcast on TV in 1960. It was an export of a theatrical anime uh, feature that started around the same time. Within a few years, there were several anime television series that were made so that it could receive uh, varying levels of airplay in the U.S. and other countries. So they basically did one on their TV and were like, this is sick. We need to make these so that we can kind of export them. Um, this includes the highly influential Astro Boy of 1963, followed oh. by Kimba the White Lion. I don't know if either of you have seen Kimba the White Lion, but I definitely have seen that. Um, it's the Lion Man. King. Like they, it, like, yeah. they sued Disney because they're like, you stole the Lion King. It was Kimba. You just ripped us off. And they were like, oh, um, Sally the Witch. And then another one that is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, go, go, go. Uh, mock, go, go, go. 1967, a.k.a. Speed Racer, oh which is like the God. first anime I ever watched. My mom used to watch Speed Racer and I would watch it with her all the time. And it's awesome. <laughs> my cousin found this techno song. That is just like it's techno and then there's clips of it and it just says go speed racer go and then there's just a woman's voice going ah like the whole and he thought when we were kids he's like this is the funniest thing ever and he would like play it for us every time we were supposedly listening to bible verses on the radio instead uh that's funny because well, and it, i will say listen to christian music i remember this from watching it when i was little they do in terms of the uh, noises, it's like anytime yeah. someone's wounded in Speed Racer, <laughs> they sound like they're coming. Yes. Like if he, it's so funny. If he crashes a car and is like trapped inside it, all you hear is him going ha ha ha. Like that's him being in peril. So I'm sure they had like an endless supply of Speed Racer moans for that techno song. So many. It is bizarrely sexual. There's like a lot of sexual tension in Speed Racer that we're not talking about yes. enough, you know? 
Yes. Um, but yeah, so that was my first anime. So when I came across it, I was like, oh my gosh, yay, I love it. Because my mom was watching this when it probably came to broadcast TV and was like, oh yeah, I like this. Like, I don't know if my mom would even know that was Japanese. She was just like, I like Speed Racer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the domestically popular uh, Saisei-san started in 1969 and is probably one of the longest running animated TV shows in the world with more than 7,700 episodes. What's wow. Saisei-san? I don't know this one. It's this crazy long anime that's been running since 69 in Japan. And it's still going and it's like continuous? Yes. Man. Yes, it is the longest running animated show in the world. They think like, I don't think it's contested and it's great. It's I haven't seen any of them, but uh, how do you even get into it's that? It's intense. Like at yeah. a certain point, you're just like this started before I was born. There's well, more yeah, at episodes. this point in the story. Yeah, there's like they're on what fifth <laughs> generation of whatever the main character would be or something. Yeah, there's no way like there's no way I'm, I'm going to get into that. Like it needs to end. I can't. It's crazy. <laughs> Um, okay, so I know that you probably forgot about it by this point, but in 1968, the Hayes Code uh, had been eliminated and was replaced by the Motion Picture Association of America film rating system. So lifting the code meant that animated features from other countries could be distributed without censorship, and that censorship would not be required for American productions. So it kind of like created a new loophole. Um, Some underground cartoon features from the late 1960s were also aimed at an adult audience, such as Bambi meets Godzilla and the (laughs) anti-war films 1968's Escalation and Mickey Mouse in Vietnam in 1969. Is is Bambi meets Godzilla, like Bambi as in a cute girl, or Bambi as in the deer? It's the deer. What? I what? I swear. Hold on a minute. What it's only this? two minutes long. Okay, but nothing good can happen, right? Like Bambi it's gets just... lasered for sure. No, Bambi it's literally just gets Bambi. Squished. I was about to say, it's just Bambi being Bambi, and then a foot comes down. It's pretty fast. Oh, wow. Is that really what it is? Yes. (laughs) That's them meeting. That's that's upsetting, actually. I don't... Given your previous history with Bambi, I'm really sorry I didn't trigger warning you for that, Andrea. Oh, my God. Oh my god, dude! Holy it's literally shit. Bambi meeting Godzilla, like being adorable, eating in a field, and then just a foot. Um, uh-huh. so, this is how Jordan dies. <laughs> That's how I want to go. Just Godzilla's foot. I do like Godzilla. I feel like I would respect that. Um, so, uh, film producer way. John Magnuson completed an animated short based on a comedy routine by Lenny Bruce in 1971 titled Thank You Mask Man in which the Lone Ranger shocks the residents of a town he saves when he tells him that he wants to have sex with Tonto. Again, bestiality. <laughs> okay. Um, so this is basically people kind of starting to have fun again. Wait, 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 um, wait. Sorry. Was, wasn't Tonto his sidekick? That was his horse, I thought. Or no, Tonto was the native man. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't call Tonto bestiality. He's 
sorry. I thought Tom right. He's a human person. What's the name of his horse? Did his horse have a name? I'm sorry. Tonto is a whole person. I don't mean to be his his horse was named Silver. Because the high horse silver away. Which I only know from Ace Ventura. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh this hard, but it was just such incredible timing. I mean, I've just been thinking about the, all the censorship is just people not trying to fuck animals. So I immediately <laughs> thought that the joke was that it was his horse. Um, but not also that is way more or get them drunk. <laughs> but for 71, that's way more realistic and upsetting. Um, yeah. Like as far as what someone would try to censor. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the. Uh, the Lenny Bruce short was made uh, in San Francisco and was scheduled to premiere on the opening night of this like huge thing. And there was this whole controversy and it never got to play. And so it was kind of like this lost thing, but I have a link to it so you can watch it on YouTube. It's fine. It's just like his bit with some like a uh, fun line art that goes with it. The art looks a little bit like, uh, like a more simpler schoolhouse rock. Oh, that's okay. like how the Lone Ranger looks like the cowboy, okay. like the actual cartoon itself. But yeah, it looks pretty cool. Um, so the proper the popularity of psycho psychedelics reportedly made 1969 release of Disney's Fantasia popular amongst teenagers and college students. <laughs> I fucking bet it did. <laughs> the film started to make a profit. Similarly, Disney's Al- Disney's Alice in Wonderland also became popular with TV screenings in this period and with its 1974 theatrical re-release. Um, so, yeah, the kind of how fun the 70s was kind of played a role in, you know, animation getting fun again. Um, when so- I... When I lived in Milwaukee, they did an art screening day, like where you would sit on the lawn and they'd like screen a film on the side of the art museum. And the the film was uh, The Wizard of Oz, but the soundtrack was <laughs> Shine On Me Crazy Diamond by uh, Pink Floyd. And uh. I was there and I was just like, I mean, this is cool, I guess, but like, I don't really get it because I hadn't done psychedelics before. So (laughs) sometimes you need to change your experience to enjoy art is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yes. So in in perfect line with what you just said, the Beatles animated musical feature Yellow Submarine in 1968 showed a broad audience how animation could be quite different from the well-known TV cartoons and Disney features. The distinct design came from art director Heinz Edelman and the film received widespread acclaim and would prove to be influential. Um, And that artwork style was further popularized uh, and other artworks of Peter Max. That makes sense. Yeah. And then also, I just like this as an aside that I've never really thought about before, but I read this in my research is arguably the philosophical, psychological and sociological overtones of the Peanuts TV specials were relatively adult oriented. Yes. Um, huh. while, the sp- while the specials are also enjoyable for children, director Bill Mel- Menendez 
um, expanded the success of the series with uh, a boy named Charlie Brown, the th theatrical follow-up, uh, Snoopy Come Home. While the specials were a success, uh, the theatrical follow-up, Snoopy Come Home in 1972, was a box office flop. Um, even though it got positive reviews and Bon Voyage, Charlie Brown, and Don't Come Back <laughs> was one of the only other theatrical, traditionally animated feature films for Peanuts and the TV special, even though the TV special continued until 2001. So the Peanuts could never really make it to full feature film success <laughs> for whatever reason. But I really liked um, just them pointing out how real the feelings that those children feel are mm. yeah uh so i feel like probably charlie brown is the closest to being a straight laced version of the concepts that some of those trippier cartoons were laying down you know what i mean because he's kind of in like a what does it all mean kind of state as a kid but there's nothing else trippy about it you know yeah I would argue that later cartoons that are geared towards um, children more intentionally are even more complex than um, some of the live action shows because there are two narratives happening at the same time at a constant pace that the top level silliness and limit limitlessness of animation and the quick witted social commentaries and puns that are happening simultaneously for the parent in the background are far more complex to navigate. Um, like there's a clip I was watching of Rocky and Bullwinkle and he's like, um, oh, look down there, Rocky, there go the senators. And he's like the football <laughs> team, but it's just like a group of senators in Washington, DC. So there's like this really fast paced wordplay that if you were a kid, that means nothing to you, but it also wouldn't <laughs> right. hinder your experience either. Absolutely. It could be argued that this time marks the beginning of the adult animation we know and love today, like everything we just talked about with the 70s. Uh, comic books or manga aimed at an adult readership had existed in Japan since the early 1950s, um, some placing the date even earlier than that, but it wasn't until 1969 that the legendary industry figures... Mm, Aiki Yamamoto and Osamu Tezuka teamed up to create the first explicitly adult-oriented animated anime feature film. Um, okay. So uh, it was a loose adaptation of 1001 Arabian Nights called Sinya Ichiya Monogatari. Um, and it... it combine several of the well-known short stories into a single narrative about a humble thief named Maladin who travels to the world in pursuit of romance with a rescued slave girl and ultimately ends up playing the role uh playing the role of a mad king and the variation of the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. Wow. So they put a okay. lot of things together. That got wow. super dark. I was just like, you had me at Aladdin. And then I was like, oh, no. <laughs> nope. Slave girl turns evil. So it was deemed an adult um, animation because it had frank depictions of nudity and sex between Aladdin and his various romantic conquests. It was a massive hit in Japan and earned an unsuccessful U.S. release in an English dubbed version that is now considered considered a rare find. Wow. Um. And then one of the most notorious uh, from the adult animation genre is, of course, Fritz the Cat, 
uh, yep. animated film released in 72 uh, in which adult themes were so prominent that it became the first X-rated and American animated movie. I don't know if I have seen this Fritz. Fritz My is dad great and dark and Fritz moves fast. Um, Fritz reminds me of this 70s stuff in terms of how it's very fluid and quick. And even what you were saying, Andrea, about like, oh, now that you've, you know, experimented with hallucinogenics and being like, oh, now it makes sense. There are certain parts of Fritz that are such a stream of consciousness Mm. um, that it, you know, kind of is just... You could watch Fritz and enjoy it and be like, wait, I need to pause it for a second because it doesn't stop. Like the animation never stops moving. He rarely stops talking. Like it's a lot, but it's a good, it's good. I like it. Okay. So now I'm just going to talk about some, I tried, first off, there are like a billion different um, amazing uh, animated films and things but i tried to stick to the ones that were relevant for some particular reason so the man who created fritz the cat is named um ralph bakshi you'll hear him again later he left a lucrative career producing traditional cartoons to create animated features that not only targeted adults with sexuality and graphic language but also explored the social and political landscape of the day in um what only normal animation would hint at so he mm. kind of just went straight for the throat with some of the stuff that other things would be cheap even if it was kind of like mickey goes to vietnam was supposed to be cheeky fritz will straight up be like is war caused by man or the other way around? Like, not like that's something, but like yeah. he kind of will go straight for the real idea of whatever it is. So that's amazing. Um, based, so Fritz the Cat was based on the underground comic series by R. Crumb, who actually hated the film and killed the character off as a result. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> like he saw the movie and hated it so much he stopped drawing the comic. Um, Fritz became a box office hit by shocking audiences with cute cartoon animals engaging in sex, drugs, and violence in a gritty urban landscape. Damn, okay. The same year that Fritz the Cat came out, the Customs Service refused entry of a short film titled Cinderella spelled with an S that depicted <laughs> scenes of sexual intercourse between characters based on Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Puss in Boots, Goldilocks, The Three Bears, and Prince Charming. Damn, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it was basically like a Disney laced orgy and they were not having it. Uh, the <laughs> film was see the film was seized as obscene material and its distributor filed a court case and an appeal in 1974, but lost both. So it never got released. Wow. So that just exists somewhere. That's yes. crazy. <laughs> um, so some other quick standouts are 1975's Coonskin, which is also by Ralph Bakshi, and it is uh, it combines live action and animation into an almost surrealistic uh, landscape. It was originally titled Har Harlem Nights, and it's a satire of Hollywood racial stereotypes built around an urbanized parody of Uncle Remus and the okay. Disney version of Song of the South. What's Uncle so Remus? The Uncle Remus is an South. old racist character. Yeah, from okay. So yeah, the film it's... depicts. Oh, keep going, Jordan. Oh no, just Uncle Remus is 
fucking rough. It's uh, he like uh-huh. it, he was this. I'm just explaining to Andrea. Um, is he like a blackface yeah, yeah, yeah. character? Well, he's black. He's, he's he black, but he's he's, he's like telling stories okay. to white children. Oh, weird. Okay, so it's kind of even if it's kind of what you would see as the beginning of what we would call now like the wise old black man trope or something like gather around yeah. children like that kind of thing yes okay okay cool um yeah so um Bakshi's film depicts the exploits of brother bear brother rabbit and preacher fox as they leave their southern home for new york's harlem district where they plan to take over and quote unquote clean up the organized crime operations he uh Bakshi made a point to hire several black animators and graffiti pop artists to create the film and um lend an authentic voice along with the vocal cast which included uh Scatman Crothers, Charles Gordon and Barry White. Wow. Uh, okay. <laughs> so he went in on this film and made it like as real as he could and something that I would say at this point in terms of at this point in history to be like, okay, I'm going to make this black satire film and immediately reach out to this many other black artists is pretty sick. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. But nonetheless, the film's satirical use of blackface character designs and other stereotypes were taken literally by Congress's racial equality civil rights group who accused the film of racism um, and blunted its initial release. So basically they were like... Um, the movie is called Coonskin. It's 1975. And basically Congress saw it and was like, this movie's racist. And they were like, no, America's racist. That's why we made the movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, and so I just thought that point. was funny that he was trying to make a satire and they were like, your satire is too racist. I've watched this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my ex made me watch it and I was just like, I, it's been all it was a long time ago we watched it when we first started dating so it was several years ago but it was like he was like check this out and I was like whoa <laughs> it's crazy it's it's very intense I remember just being like you know I remember sort of watching it and just being like there's a lot going on here it's very it's definitely interesting and I would say worth watching it's been a long time but I remember being like whoa also, we'll touch on it in like very shortly, but a hundred percent Holly from Cool World is probably influenced by this female mm. character in Coonskin. Interesting. They look so much alike. Um, but yeah, so then some other standouts are 1981's Heavy Metal. Um, it was one of the biggest animated cult hits of all time, and it was inspired by a French science fiction magazine. Uh, 1983's Fire and Ice is another Ralph Bakshi film um, that is a barbaric epic in the mold of Conan the Barbarian. Or Barbarian? Barbarian. What is that? That's like a ball bearing. <laughs> a um, um, but that is considered to be Bakshi's greatest post-first achievement. So that's like the other movie that people know him for. And then some call the 1980s a low point because animation was so commercialized for kids outside of this. So um, them reverse engineering products around things like He-Man, Gem and the Holograms, Thundercats, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Care Bears, Transformers, a lot of the stuff we love, a lot of... um, 
uh, a lot of traditionalist kind of note as being so geared towards commercialism that they don't like it. But well, yeah, like it's cartoons. So, <laughs> so, but to circle back, um, the the seventies and the the heavy metal that was a comic book for ever like that had been around for years before the movie came out um Uh and then it's the fritz the cat the heavy metal uh our crumb all of these are under the blanket of comics with an x and that's like the underground comics movement so that's the that's where you're getting like the drugs in animation and you're getting the the Pink Floyd of animation. Um, the Hobbit was another one of those. Like there's, you know, The Hobbit is just the story, but it's got that, uh, like the band playing, like there's music that's really of the time. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. so like the, the comics and that underground scene and counterculture that has been building in this time um it really gets swung back once you hit the 80s and you start getting hair metal and young republicans and just the absolute commercial commercialization of literally everything to the point where cartoons at this time they are just commercials to sell toys like Long that's where the market right. is you get he-man well, even space jam space jam was straight up a commercial that's later but yeah it's like we kind of continue this trend through the 80s and 90s it's like yeah wow yeah no like he-man was designed to sell the toys the toys were first yes. and then the animation that's what i'm saying second. yeah i didn't yeah. know yes that. everything everything that i just listed in that little uh, he that list that started with He-Man were all reverse engineered around products to be sold. Oh, yes. that was My Little Pony for me for sure. Yeah, yeah. But and if you if you oh look yeah, at, like, I definitely yeah. And Care Bears, mm-hmm. the music, the animation, the comics, the printmaking. I mean, the seventies. You've got the rise of punk. You've got the rise of new wave. You've got all of this stuff that's happening um, and just all of this this generation of art and culture that is kind of they're over the hippies. I mean, in 1969, Woodstock uh, Woodstock happens, but then um, Sharon Tate is murdered. The mm, yeah. there's just there's the death just, of that idealism kind of yes and so this idea of like the mm-hmm. hippie movement it gets completely like everyone is and that's why Fritz the cat comes along is because it gets dark yes yes it gets very dark because shit starts to go wrong and people are starting yep. to like lose that idealism that post war idealism and then you have the sixties mm-hmm. of like the free love movement. And literally the summer of 69, like there were so many, because that was Jonestown too, I think, was the summer of 69. Mm -hmm. So it was just like one thing after another. So then you get into the 70s and you get this entire run of just like the anti-establishment and the Mm anti-production. And it's very like, we're going to make this, we're going to make it ourselves. Like there's this huge DIY scene 
which is part of why that movie, uh, what was it called? Which one? The Coonskin? Uh, yes. So that one, it, they probably reached out to all of those artists because they were like, hey, we don't need white people to make this movie that we want to make. Mm-hmm. Like there was just such a huge mm-hmm. DIY movement at the time. Mm-hmm. Even though that was a white man that needed black people's help. But yes, no, I totally get it. Um, <laughs> I, but, oh. I, uh, but no, you're totally right. No, just because he was the big guy. Okay, um, see. <laughs> but he pulled all of those people in and for him to have been in that mindset in that time to me was like, Oh, that's pretty sick. Um, yeah. so yeah, but you're totally right. So now we're going into the eighties. I want my animation. So in the 1970s <laughs> and eighties, there was a clear line between adult films, like uh, underground adult animated films and commercial children's cartoons, but that was all about to change. It is impossible to discuss animated uh, adult animation without uh, mentioning The Simpsons. A cartoon short <laughs> on the Tracy Ullman show, um, now 30 seasons in the making. Creator Matt Groening developed the cartoon from his comic strip called Life in Hell, Instead of offering the comic strip, however, Groening created The Simpsons at the last minute in hopes of holding on to what he believed was his golden work. The shorts mm-hmm. premiered on The Tracy Ullman Show and caught the eye of a creative director looking for content for his brand new channel. MTV's Katina, first create What? I have to say, every time I see Lisa from The Simpsons, if I see like a meme or art, I think of you, and I don't know why, <laughs> but for some reason in my brain... You and Lisa from The Simpsons are inexorably linked. I do uh, really appreciate that. I don't know why, but I definitely (laughs) fuck with it. And I do fuck with Lisa. I am Lisa in real life in terms of like everyone doing a bunch of stuff and just not addressing the very apparent moral issues at hand. Yeah. And just being like, this is wrong and no one is paying attention. Yeah, Um, I just, for whatever reason, every time I'm just like, Katrina is kind of Lisa a little bit. You're more chill, though. That's the you've ever given me. (laughs) So, yeah, so someone else that loved Lisa Simpson was MTV's first creative director, Fred Siebert. He saw the cartoons as the best visual analogy for rock and roll and started employing edgy animators to do the now famous interstitials. So I don't know if either of you watched MTV or were allowed. Andrea, you weren't allowed and didn't have the channel. But MTV, even as a logo, it was like it would be claymation or someone would draw. It was always like there were these interstitials of the logo doing Mm. whatever an artist would want to do with it kind of thing. Okay. And it was sick. So he basically <laughs> was doing, just employing any weird artist he wanted. It was like, you got a weird cartoon? Let's do it. You want to make the logo look weird in claymation? Let's go. Like, you want to make it, like, split apart and grow an eye and pus? I'm down. Like, he put whatever quick, fun, interesting visuals um, he wanted on MTV in its early days. And it was sick. So... Uh, They bolstered their animated slate by including an anthology show called Liquid Television, which created a home for all these bizarre animated shorts. This included The Simpsons and eventually birthed both Beavis and Butthead and Eon Flux. 
Oh, I fucking nice. love Eon Flux. Me too. I can, I was looking shit. at it would come on late night and I didn't know where it came from, but I was like, I love this, whatever this is. You know what I mean? If you haven't seen Aeon Flux, it is uh, this like bizarre, surrealistic, almost like f it's like futuristic, f like yes, f it's dark a futuristic. Fantasy. It's a futuristic um, illustrated anime about a um like technologically generated female spy i don't know what yeah. you would call her i feel like they bring her back to life at some point but it's super cool it's like her kicking ass and finding out secrets about herself but it's <laughs> like in terms of even when i was seeing it at that age it was like oh this is a cartoon but it's serious like this cartoon is so serious and i was just like oh i'm intrigued by this you know when you think <laughs> about the pacing of it it's like there's a lot of empty spaces and these sort of like quiet moments that are, are almost it feels like a horror movie in some ways. The way that they're framing things where there's like a okay. close up of a fly landing on an open eyeball. Ooh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And the buzzing. And it's just this like very bizarre, surrealistic thing. I didn't watch it till I was all out of college someone gave me dvds to watch it on but it's like it's very <laughs> worth checking out yeah and flux is a shit so i'm that embarrassed was the birthplace of a i thought you guys were talking about xenon <laughs> xenon of the 21st century <laughs> i mean hey, the 21st she, century <laughs> she deserves <laughs> Xenon Warrior Princess? No, that's Xena. Um, <laughs> just, just mixing up a bunch of strong women. Um, but that's also the first place you saw Daria. Like, Liquid Television mm. birthed, birthed a bunch of stuff that I grew to um, cling to as an identity uh, in later years. So in August 91, Ren and Stimpy debuted on Nickelodeon aside Doug and Rugrats, and it was one of uh, their first... Um, full sets of animation was Doug Rudrax and Ren and Stimpy was like a night, their first night that they tried it on Nickelodeon. And while not exactly an adult cartoon, Ren and Stimpy by today's standards is much too, <laughs> too weird to be completely classified as for children. Um, yeah, absolutely. My mom wouldn't let me watch it. She banned it in our house. Um, and though it's still debatable for its appropriateness for children, as Andre is saying, we still see glimpses of it in modern cartoons like Regular Show and Adventure Time that are still on Cartoon Network. When my babysitter came over, she would like watch, you know, she'd do all the naughty things that we weren't allowed to do. And she would like watch <laughs> Ren and Stimpy. And I'd be like, my mother says we're not supposed to watch this. You know, oh I was my like God. that kid, So. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, honestly, it wouldn't be an episode of Pavon Guard if we didn't reveal the horrible personal practices of an artist. So quick side <laughs> note, John Kay is a fucking monster. Oh, no. Uh, the guy that created Ren and Stimpy, allegedly. I'll say John Kay is allegedly a monster. Um, he was report. He's reportedly, and this is like way less argued, that he was insanely difficult to work with. Um, he used to uh, reportedly rip up animators' drawings in front of them if they did not meet his standards. Jesus. Um, while also being a predator and grooming young female animators under the guise of helping their budding careers. So cool. there is 
a well-documented um, uh, case with a female anime uh, animator who he met when she was like 15 or 16 that started taking trips and staying with him and doing these things. He gave her her first job out of high school, all this stuff. But like it was an open secret that she was later his girlfriend as like an of age woman. And all the people he hung out with were like, yeah, but we all knew that he had a 15 year old girlfriend like three years before that. So oh God, yeah, yeah John K is a freaking creep and he's apparently kind of a jerk even outside of that um well that makes a lot of sense when you look at the run and simpy animation then because <laughs> it's yeah, like well, visceral and, and sexual and like kind of messed up and well the yeah power dynamics and stuff that are in it but also in terms of just actually sabotaging the uh or as far as his practices actually being a detriment to the cartoon Mm -hmm. um it was why ren and stimpy kind of paused and got stuck it was like in between it was being bought by nickelodeon but was being produced by another animation studio i think called spunko um gross and they were constantly over budget he was um they had like oh we're going to you know, write a contract for X amount of episodes, but he thought no one was good enough. So his animation team was like three people instead of however many it was supposed to be. So he's like the Frank Lloyd Wright of- <laughs> Yes, the they Frank were constantly, <laughs> he was constantly missing deadlines, all this stuff. And then the, the people at the studio were like not finishing the things properly. So that's why there's all those discrepancies in the way the final animation looks where you, when you look at episodes now, like it was a hot mess apparently. Um, I just love the idea yeah. of like a niche cartoon animator being like, I am God and I'm too good for these people. Like just yes. getting a God <laughs> complex at that level is fully hilarious to me. And it's like you realize that the drawing that you just ripped up for not being good enough was a tray of boogers. You do realize that, right? <laughs> like that's yes. what I'm drawing. Cause that's what I'm drawing. I'm drawing a booger collection, sir. Please stop screaming at me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, he apparently was that kind of dude, but MTV in general just played such a huge part and Fred's vision in the animation to come. Mike judges King of the Hill premiered in 1997 Futurama premiered in 99. Um, and then later, uh, claymation shows like the PJs would come around the same time as Eric Fogel's Celebrity Deathmatch, which was one of my favorite claymation shows ever, uh, which is just celebrities in claymation engaging in highly stylized professional wrestling matches um, where they're insanely gruesome and most of the time you see part of someone's body explode. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I um, remember this because my mom loved that. I also That's your mom so did not like funny. winning Stippy, but she would let you watch claymation entrails. Yeah, That's she so loves funny. Space celebrity deathmatch is wild. My mom is she has very specific. I, I think there's also like you know like she didn't let us watch Run and Stimpy when I was like seven, but then once I got into high school, she you know things laxed a little bit. But she loved my mom loves Space Ghost Coast to Coast, and she really liked yes. the Run and Stimpy <laughs> thing. Or not Ren and Stimpy, the, the fights. I remember just seeing the, the people fighting and stuff. 
Yes. Oh man, I used to watch so much Celebrity Deathmatch, and my mom would be like, "I don't like that you watch that. It's too violent." But she, <laughs> you know, when your mom does that weird thing where she's like trying to figure out if she should parent you or not, but then she leaves you alone. She would do like yeah. awkward pauses where she was like, I feel like I should probably make a call on this. And then she would be like, meh, whatever. And just like go do something else. That oh. was how my dad and stepmom were more as parents. Speaking of moms, though, because you mentioned King of the Hill and my mom is from Texas. So oh. every once in a while. And by that, I mean, every single time I call her, she goes, I tell you what. And it makes me laugh. <laughs> Every single time. <laughs> and I feel so bad because I'm like, Mom, I know this is how you talk. But, like, I will also tell you what. It sounds Damn like it, a bit. Bobby. Oh, King of the Hill is one of my favorite, And my mom knows of all Hill. of these because she watched them with me. Yeah, but I okay. can't get her to actually care about any of them. But, like, she knows all this stuff because she was just sitting down being like, oh, you love all of this stuff. Um. <laughs> that's the most mom response ever i love that that's so cute but yeah i yeah all of these things i love that you both keep just bringing up things that i also am like yes i love that and i'm about to talk about it oh so perfect. now we're out of the kiddie pool uh in september 2001 time warner established adult swim as pro as a programming block on cartoon network aimed at an adult audience um, some said that it was the beginning of great changes in, in the world of adult animated series for the next 20 years. Creators Mike Lazo and Michael Oluween saw how many adults were watching their channel and, origin and originally confused executives who thought that adults don't watch cartoons, leading them to get, begin with a small number of shows made, um, made cheap and aimed at young men. The effort was successful and the programming block developed a cult following. So basically they were like, hey, we should make this block. And they were like, mm, do adults watch cartoons? We'll give you a little bit of money. Yeah. <laughs> and it immediately blew up. So Adult Swim was home for many original adult and um, adult animation programs, such as Aqua Teen Hunger Force, Boondocks, and Robot Chicken, as well as reruns of shows like Family Guy and King of the Hill. Um, so again, in terms of like MTV kind of made a little home for shorts yeah. and then Adult Swim came and made a haven for syndication, you know, we would my dad, uh, my dad had cable and but my mom and stepdad didn't at, you know, by the time I was in high school. And so every Saturday we'd go to my dad's house and I would stay up all night watching Adult Swim. And like I was obsessed with Boondocks. That was like my favorite one. Like I was like, what uh -huh. is this? It's a samurai, but it's not not and like uh -huh. there's just these funny you know like all that kind of shit i was in love so with weird. huey he's so i would have killed for there to be a huey <laughs> at my school <laughs> like a high school version of huey would have been great yeah um uh yeah so that's all of this stuff is uh coming to fruition and uh it even acted as a savior for the cancellation of shows. When Family Guy almost bit the dust completely in 2003, Adult Swim and its fans helped bring it back on air in 2005. Wow. Um, which I did not know. And, I didn't know uh, that either. The, the programming block also marked the return of Space Goes Coast to Coast, which yep. ran on Cartoon Network from 94 to 2001. Not only was it said to be the first original series fully produced by Cartoon, Cartoon Network it had two spin-off series um and from called Cartoon Planet and The Brock Show which I also loved while in, <laughs> while in 
And that style, I don't know if either of you watched this, but that style also helped inspire uh, the series C-Lab 2021 uh, and Aqua Teen and Harvey Birdman Attorney at Law. Was that also so did, I watched? what inspired Metalocalypse? Because I fucking love Metalocalypse. <laughs> I, Metalocalypse, I feel like is more almost boondocksy. Like okay. when Metalocalypse first came out, I thought that was just like white guy boondocks. Oh, interesting. But I love okay. I love Metalocalypse too, but I felt like it was like maybe a balance of that, but I don't know. Interesting. Cause it, it's fully like like the bit of Metalocalypse is just they're all really dumb. Like that's the bit. And it's just I don't know, I really like yes. it. Yes. Ooh, you're I would you're probably right because it also lists um Oh, I said Aqua Teen, but Aqua Teen makes me think of Metalocalypse in terms of just like them trying to survive and they aren't that bright, a lot of them. <laughs> and then also huh, the Eric Andre show is also listed yep. as like potentially being inspired by it. So um, now adult animation is bigger than ever. We have Big Mouth, we have Bojack Horseman, we have all of these things that are basically mainstream on top of people that still like adult animation as a niche. And things like Midnight Gospel, Primal, Archer, Invincible, F is for Family, Solar Opposites. Um, but those are just some personal favorites. And yeah. basically, and Morty, there's never, stuff. yeah, exactly. Uh, basically, there's never been a better time to be an adult that loves cartoons. Um, I love that. Katina. Yeah. That's amazing. So in conclusion, animation is a time capsule. It tells stories that reflect not only where we were at that moment in society, but the ever-changing lens through which we view ourselves. To quote Walt Disney, animation can bring pleasure and information to people of all ages and that adults are only grown-up kids anyway. Aww. And that's my episode. That's the final episode on adult animation. And that's <laughs> that why it's great. like totally cool and adult to watch cartoons and you shouldn't call people nerds for it because it's just like always been cool and you guys should be <laughs> cool about it is please stop making and, fun of me and for sources i will put the good old email us at pavangar gmail note because i have them but they're probably not going to fit in the description so thanks <laughs> yay that was so good katrina thank you so much yeah um, yeah, so if you enjoyed listening to me talk at length about adult animation um, or any of our other awesome episodes, uh, follow us at Pavangard, P-O-D-V-A-N-T-E-G-A-R-D-E on Instagram uh, uh, or Twitter or find us on our Facebook uh, page under the same name um, or our Patreon, which we'll have a link in the comments. Uh, yeah, and if you guys want to send us uh, old stills from animations or <laughs> some type of flip book you made as a child, you can send it to our physical P.O. Box address because we have a P.O. Box now. And that is at 1001 Fremont Avenue, number 366, South Pasadena, California, 91031. Yay. Yeah. Wonderful. Are you guys doing your personal? Yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. I'm sorry. If you <laughs> no, don't be sorry me, at all. 
if you want to follow me as an individual, um, my name's Katrina. I talk the most this time. Uh, follow me at <laughs> Katrina Savad. Uh, it's just Davis backwards, uh, S I V A D for, uh, comedy stuff and things that I have coming. And also amazing memes from the podcast. Great memes. <laughs> also, Solid also, memes. uh, potentially avant-garde related memes that young, that my young friends from dance team in high school make fun of me for using pixelated images on. It's <laughs> <laughs> I was like, stop Gen Zing my Instagram, Diana. No, I'm kidding. She's cool. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, if you guys want to follow me, I'm on Instagram at Andrea Gazetta. I'm on Twitter at Sundress Comic. Uh, I have my own website, AndreaGazetta.com. I sell prints and art and cool stuff. And I also have my own Patreon that's basically an exclusive sticker club, but it also offers like behind the scenes on my close Instagram stories of how I make art. And that's at patreon.com slash Andrea Gazetta. So check that out. Yay. Yay. And I am, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I've been awake since 5 a.m. Um, I am Jordan Lee Williams. And if you want to check out the weird uh, stuff that I make, it is at Goonie Bird Crafts. If you want to see my face that you know, I don't post any photos of me crying, but, I, you know, just understand that it, it happens a lot. Uh, but I am at the <laughs> Goonie Bird, uh, and I'm on the Facebook uh, discussion group that we have. We should just Yay. start a Patreon tier or a, a Patreon tier that is just a small vial of Jordan crying over art of her actual <laughs> tears. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Jordan, that's, here's the thing, you keep making up things too exclusive for the tiers that exist. I did not mean to make a play on words. They there have to make a tier plenty. tier. Yeah, no, there are plenty. I could collect, you know that, uh, that gun where you like collect your tiers and it can make a single bullet? I think that I could fight, like I could, I could survive a zombie apocalypse alone yes. with that gun. <laughs> You, if if, t if bullets were made out of tears, Jordan could supply a Gatling gun. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> I could play Fallout by myself forever. It's oh my so God. funny. Yeah, I would love to see that. Well, yeah. Thank you all so much for uh, listening to another episode. And we'll see you next time. We love, <laughs> we love you. you. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, Andrea here. Um, I'm asking for your help a little bit today because Jordan, Katrina, and I are all comedians and artists who don't have any experience editing sound. And because this is a sound-based medium, we have asked an editor to help us with our episodes. Um, we had a few issues early on with some of the early recordings and we're working on getting those sorted out. Um, and part of that is just having an audio engineer. So in order to be able to actually pay him and pay him a fair rate, uh, we're asking for your help. We've set up a Patreon, patreon.com slash podvantgard. And our goal is that we can pay him not from our own pockets, but from the resources of the show itself, which means we need your help. Um, 
We're also planning on starting to release bonus episodes. We'll start with one a month. Um, and as that Patreon rate increases, we'd like to eventually expand that to a bonus episode every week. And the bonus episodes will be more, um, a little bit more loose fit. We'll be covering art, uh, like current events and weird things that happen because there's a lot of like weird stuff going on in the art world right now, um, especially around NFTs, especially around AI. And I think it's really interesting and worth talking about, but we just need to be able to pay someone to edit that bonus content. Um, I would also say that in terms of the time cost, you know, Katrina, Jordan, and I all are supporting ourselves outside of this show. This show takes a lot of time. I'm probably spending at least three days a week with every episode just researching. We're buying books. Um, Katrina's editing the time codes. She's building our website. She's doing all our social media. Jordan is also researching her own episodes. And my goal for the Patreon is just that it can become something that you know we're not looking to get rich I don't think that's ever been our goal I don't think we ever think that could be our goal but what I'd like to be able to happen eventually is that the Patreon can become a way for us to just pay ourselves a living wage for the time that we invest into this show my experience uh, with cult podcast um, is that it's really hard to make a show every single week and not have other financial resources. So what I want is that this Patreon can eventually become a financial resource for us. It can help us support ourselves and it can help us to continue putting the show out so that we don't get burnt out and want to pull our hair out. Um, we love you so much and we think that the show is really important. I personally think that we need more podcasts that cover history and art history from a feminist, anti-colonial queer perspective and that's where we're coming from as artists and as art historians and comedians we love you we love this show thank you so much for supporting it that's again at patreon.com slash and thanks guys <laughs>